The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Help! I need somebody! Help! Not just anybody! Help! You know I need someone! Help! Welcome to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. Family caregivers don't have to be alone in their experiences. You will hear from experts and other caregivers facing the same issues that you may be facing. Now, here is your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley. Welcome to episode 341 of Family Caregivers Unite. This is Dr. Gordon Atherley, your host. I'm a physician retired from practice. Our topic today is feasibility of de-identification of genetic data. Now let's start with a bit of history. In 2013, after an archaeological dig on a city council car park in Leicester, England, the University of Leicester confirmed that a skeleton discovered in 2012 was that of King Richard III, and he died in the year 1485. A British historian who studied King Richard III's family tree discovered that his descendants could be traced to a British-born woman who immigrated to Canada after the Second World War, who settled in Canada and died in 2008. Named Joy Ibsen, she was a 16th generation descendant of the king, and Michael is her eldest son. In 2012, Michael presented the research team with a DNA sample to be tested against DNA from the king's skeletal remains. In February 2004, the researchers announced that, yes, there was a DNA match. The remains are those of Richard III, and Michael is one of his descendants. And what this story tells us is that if big databases hold our genetic information, in the year 2500, researchers and who knows who else will be able to link our descendants back to us individually and to all our genetic relatives. All of which is why our topic, feasibility of de-identification of genetic data, is so important. Our guest is Jeremy Gruber. Now, Jeremy is a lawyer. He's president and executive director of the Council for Responsible Genetics. He holds a Juris Doctor degree from St. John's University School of Law and a BA in politics from Brandeis University. He's worked for over 20 years on genetic privacy and non-discrimination legislation at the state and federal level. He helped author and pass numerous state laws on genetic non-discrimination. He's a founder and executive committee member of the Coalition for Genetic Fairness, a group of 500 organizations. The coalition advocated for genetic non-discrimination legislation on Capitol Hill and played a major role in the passage of the Genetic Information 
Non-Discrimination Act by Congress. He worked closely with members of Congress and staff on the act. And he also led the successful campaign to roll back a controversial student genetic testing program at the University of California, Berkeley, Berkeley, sorry, in 2010. So, Jeremy, first of all, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Gordon. Great. And my very first question is, please, would you tell us more about the Council for Responsible Genetics and its work? Jeremy? Sure. Well, the Council for Responsible Genetics was founded in 1983. It was really the first uh, organization uh, to be founded uh, in, a, in this um, to deal with this emerging uh, area of biotechnology. Uh, and the mission of the organization is to represent the public interest and foster debate about the many social, ethical, and environmental implications of emerging genetic technologies. Uh, so our work has really spanned a, a variety of different areas from privacy and discrimination, as you uh, just uh, previously noted, uh, to issues having to do with GMOs, uh, genetically engineering uh, humans and other types of cloning practices, uh, issues of uh, genetic determinism, biolab safety, really a, a wide range of, of disciplines that fall within the public interest in biotechnology. A huge range and a very significant range of things and questions. Now, we're going to be talking about genetic information. Jeremy, what is genetic information? Jeremy? Well, genetic information is uh, a type of health information. Um, it includes information uh, about that, that is derived from a genetic test uh, or information that you even had a genetic test. Uh, but it also includes something that many people don't think of when they think of genetic information, and that is family history. Because even today, with genetic tests as sophisticated as they are, family history is still the most common type of genetic information uh, that is being used. Uh, and it is your, the history of, uh, of, of the health of your family. Uh, and that is your genetic uh, information as well. Right. Now, I want, I've borrowed something from your work, your website, and I've turned it into a question. Would you please summarize for us why genetic information warrants special protection? Jeremy? Well, I would hope that all medical information uh, was well protected, but genetic information uh, is particularly uh, important um, because it's a very robust form of medical information, and it reveals a, a variety of different types of information, not just health information, uh, as I previously discussed, but also information related to identity, ancestry, like you talked about in your introduction, uh, and paternity as well. And it doesn't just uh, cover these various types of areas, but it, it relates information that can uh, uh, be attributed to all members of your family going back generations and going forward generations. Uh, so it implicates uh, not just you, but a wide variety of people uh, that may, uh, may not even know that you're using your genetic information for one purpose or another. Now, I use the term um, database or big database. Um, please explain for us 
how those things that we hear a lot about, uh, not always positively, how do big databases fit into this picture of genetic information that warrants special protection in the way you've just described? Jeremy? Sure. Well, there are a lot of different types of databases of genetic information. Um, probably the, the, the most likely one people think of uh, are forensic databases. Those are databases uh, that law enforcement uh, uh, maintains uh, for people who have been convicted of crimes and increasingly people who have been arrested for crime before they're even convicted. Um, that's one type of database, and those types of databases contain not only uh, the profiles you know, the, uh, of uh, the people, but they, those law enforcement maintains the actual physical DNA samples themselves. That's one form. Then we have general medical databases. These are the type of databases uh, that would contain uh, your DNA uh, information uh, when you are uh, uh, going to the hospital or in any other type of a health setting. Then you have research databases. These are the types of databases that, of course, researchers use uh, in performing all types of different uh, uh, projects uh, to hopefully learn more and more about how our DNA works and how it's implicated in our health. Um, and some of these databases, they're also public health databases. So you have uh, a newborn, uh, probably most prominently are the newborn screening uh, biobanks. In the United States, uh, since uh, about the mid-1980s, almost every child born, um, their DNA is screened for certain inherited disorders, which can be a very good thing in, uh, in early uh, preventative care. But many of these samples also go into public health databases. Uh, uh, so that's another form. And then finally, we have commercial databases. Uh, we're increasingly seeing DNA uh, being used in a commercial setting, and there are a variety of different types of commercial databases uh, that have arisen, uh, those uh, that may uh, uh, help you uh, learn more about your ancestry, Ancestry.com uh, uh, being probably the, the biggest. Um, and then there are uh, health-related uh, databases, uh, 23andMe and, and other uh, online uh direct-to-consumer genetic testing companies maintain very robust uh, databases of health information. Just very quickly, the, what was genetic fairness? Well, the Coalition for Genetic Fairness, uh, which is where the term came, comes from, uh, was a coalition uh, that we created to spur uh, genetic privacy non-discrimination legislation in the United States. Um, and the, the name uh, was simply denotes the intent of the coalition and the legislation to ensure that people are treated fairly, that they're not discriminated against based upon their genetic information. The truth is that we're all at risk for certain uh, common genetic disorders. Um, it's the one type of discrimination that we are all potential victims of, uh, and the, the Coalition for Genetic Fairness uh, was uh, founded to ensure that we have uh, sufficiently strong legislation to ensure that our genetic information is secured and, and used fairly. Right. Now, at that point, because uh, it's a crucial one, that is the sense of fairness and protection and responsibility. 
Um, we're going to take the break. This is where, Jeremy, I always say we have to pay the rent, and this is where we do it, so we'll do it now. Um, this is Dr. Gordon Alvey. My guest is Jeremy Gruber. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety and Empowerment Channels, CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio, and sharingtheburden.ca. Please stay with us. We will be back. Change your world. Change your life. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com Get ready to experience a more fulfilling lifestyle. Tune in to Direct Connect Empowerment with host Fee Mazanke. The show will feature guests who have changed their lives by using the Direct Connect coaching program or have worked with the same concepts that this program offers. By hearing how others have been transformed, you will be inspired to move forward. Direct Connect Empowerment with Fee Mazanke can be heard live every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our wall. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. What makes you a success? Is it your business or career? Is it your family and social life? How do you achieve the next level in your success? Tune in to Infinite Success Radio with host Rachel O'Brien Eddy. Rachel and her amazing guests are here to encourage, inspire, and empower you to take control of your destiny and achieve the level of success you were born to reach. How do ordinary people become extraordinary? Find out with Infinite Success Radio, broadcasting live every Friday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Empowerment. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. That's D-O-C, the letter G, at FamilyCaregiversUnite.org. Don't forget, you can catch new episodes of our program twice every week, Mondays on the Voice America Empowerment Channel and Tuesdays on the Voice America Variety Channel. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Jeremy Gruber. Our topic is Feasibility of De-Identification of Genetic Data. Now, Jeremy, let's talk about the risks that arise when the protection of genetic information is insufficient. So first question then is, what do you see as the greatest risks of harm that arise when the protection is insufficient for genetic information that is linked to identifiable individuals? Jeremy? Sure. Well, as we mentioned earlier, Gordon, the the risk of discrimination um, is is very high. Uh, when genetic information is identifiable and accessible. Um, and it, it, that type of uh, genetic information is, uh, is of great interest to any type of entity uh, that is interested in predictive information. Uh, 
Uh, and so uh, everything from employers to different types of insurers, health, uh, disability, long-term care insurers, um, mortgage lenders, uh, really any entity that might uh, find value in learning about your health history uh, could use that information uh, to make uh, decisions uh, that could affect you and your family for quite some time. Uh, so it's really important um, not only that information be de-identified, but that we have laws in place uh, to prevent the access of, of that information by, by those types of, of entities. Now, that's probably the greatest risk, but of course, uh, you know, the ability to control your own information is, is, is a very important one, and privacy is something that most people hold very dear. Uh, and, and the uh, idea that genetic uh, information uh, might be accessed, even if it's not particularly used to discriminate, but that it's access to learn something about you and your family, um, could be very detrimental uh, to, to people. There was a case, for example, uh, not too long ago uh, where uh, information was, uh, was taken by, by law enforcement uh, uh, in one particular case, and, and issues of paternity was, uh, was learned about an individual. Uh, and, uh, you know, those types of things can, can happen. Um, so, so while that may not be uh, as, as problematic as outright discrimination, it, it's still a really important issue in terms of how people uh, think about their data and who might have access to it. Let me just follow up on something. Let's take the case of an employer uh, who might, for one reason or another, come across our genetic information. In, in what ways could the employer use that to our disadvantage, that genetic information? Jeremy? Well, sure. You know, uh, employers have, have two very strong uh, uh, concerns when it comes to health information and, and, and their employees. One, they want to make sure that all the training uh, that, go, that they put into an employee uh, doesn't go to waste because that employee then has to take off a, a lot of, of time due to sickness uh, for themselves or their family. Um, and they're also facing very uh, high health care costs. Uh, so there are very strong economic incentives for employers uh, to acquire genetic information and to use it to make employment decisions ranging from uh, failure to refuse to hire to firing uh, to, uh, to promotion decisions. Um, and so uh, employers in particular are, uh, are and have been uh, problematic uh, in this area. Uh, there was one... Uh, case, for example, uh, where a woman in Connecticut uh, had tested positive for the BRCA gene. Uh, that is a, a gene that is, uh, has been linked to increased uh, cases of breast and ovarian cancer. Uh, and when the employer discovered that, the employer actually terminated her employment, thought that she would become too costly, uh, and, uh, and decided uh, that the, he had uh, better better uh, choices among other employees. So you know, these cases do happen. Uh, we did pass a federal law in the United States uh, to prevent employers from accessing information. Uh, that doesn't mean employers won't try to access it in certain cases. That just means that now there's legal recourse. Right. Now, I'm going to take you to the next question, which really parallels what we've just been talking about, is, which is this. What do you see as the greatest risks of harm that arise when the protection is insufficient of genetic information that is linked not only to identifiable individuals, 
but also to their genetic relatives and descendants. What's the harm there, Jeremy? Well, of course, you know, as the more robust uh, information that is linked to your uh, DNA, uh, the more likely it can be used uh, to, uh, or mis- rather misused, uh, in a variety of fashions. Uh, and particularly uh, when it comes to your family members, uh, people have been, de- you know, as we just talked about, people have been denied employment who are completely healthy uh, because uh, an employer thought that their dependent might become more costly. Um, uh, and so, and this, and and these similar and similar types of stories have happened uh, with various forms of insurance. So, you know, this type of you know this type of information can be uh, very costly, not just to, to individuals but to family members that they didn't even think uh, were in jeopardy. Right. Now, I'm going to ask you about the situation as it is at present. So, right now. How and to what extent can genetic information in big databases be linked to identifiable individuals when the individuals' names are actually excluded from the database? What's your answer? Sure. Well, DNA is a very robust form of information, perhaps the most robust form of information that exists. Um, And uh, simply taking away a name is, is completely insufficient to ensure uh, that that data is de-identified. You know, there was a time when we talked about uh, uh, anonymity. Well, anonymity doesn't really exist. Even de-identification uh, has been shown uh, to be uh, a, a, a bit of a, a misnomer. Um, in, in fact, uh, in more and more research trials, people who are being asked to participate uh, are being told uh, that your DNA might be de-identified, but that it is not uh, will not be and cannot be completely anonymous because of the recognition, uh, as more and more work has been done, that this information can be re-identified. There's a pretty famous case um, that really sort of started the, the, the ball rolling in terms of uh, shedding light on how information can be re-identified. It was a case that happened back in the 90s. Uh, when at, when the, then a, a, a young uh, a young healthcare researcher by the name of Latanya Sweeney uh, went to then Governor of Massachusetts William uh, uh, Weld, who had been trying to make uh, health information more accessible, uh, and she provided him a, a, a copy of his health record. Uh, she had actually been able to ident- put his name, attach his name to his health record. Um, uh, by by uh, some simple uh, uh, some simple computer skills. Um, more recently, there has been a lot of work on re-identifying uh, specific genetic data. Um, there was a, a case in 2008, for example, where Daniel Craig, a geneticist at a, at a research institute in Phoenix, uh, conducted a, a study to see if he would be able to. Uh, identify people based on their DNA samples from a, a relatively large biobank, and uh, and was able to to, do, to identify people even if their DNA was only 0.1 percent of the database. Um, another researcher uh, at Mount Sinai School of Medicine conducted a, a similar study, um, and even more recently, just last year, uh, in a famous study. Um, uh, at the Whitehead Institute in Massachusetts, uh, researchers were able to identify uh, individuals from their DNA from a random selection of a thousand people. Um, 
it wasn't that long ago that the NIH actually had to uh, close off what had been a, a publicly accessible database for fears that information could be re-identified. It's a real problem, and uh, we're only uh, just beginning to address uh, this problem as genetic information becomes more and more uh, accessible and more widely uh, used. And there is research going on, um, uh, particularly at Microsoft, for example, on finding new encryption techniques for uh, for controlling a genetic data so that it can be used while it main it it maintains its uh, its a protected encryption status, but that's still in the research stage. Uh, and uh, individuals who are in databases at this stage uh, really need to, to know that uh, while some databases may go to, to, to great pains to de-identify their data, it is not uh, completely anonymous. So am I going too far if I say that right now, talking about privacy of genetic information is perhaps uh, putting too much confidence in the ability of the databases, the people that manage them and ourselves, um, in protecting the genetic information of people whose names are not in the database, but whose data is in the database. Very long-winded question. Well, what do you think? Well, I think it's going to be uh, I think it remains a, a very important issue, and I think a large part of that issue is there's no transparency. Uh, so we don't know a lot about how individual biobanks work. There's no governing authority. There's no regulatory uh, agency that requires any type of standards. Uh, so it's really up to uh, particular biobanks uh, and uh, to, to set their own privacy policies to abide by them. Um, and, uh, and those types of policies go, you know, include everything from, uh, you know, how that information is stored um, to who has access to it um, and, and on down. So, you know, it, it's a, it, right now uh, databases in, in, uh, are generally highly decentralized, which for privacy can be a very good thing. Uh, but, you know, what we're likely going to see more and more of in the future is a bleeding of databases uh, where data from one database uh, starts to move into, into a database where that the original person never even contemplated. Right. Uh, so uh, w what we really need is, is uh, far, far more important rules and regulations to ensure that this data is secured and used uh, and used appropriately. Okay. Now, we're going to have to take the break now, but that's something that what you just mentioned about needs for better protection and that kind of thing. That's going to be in our next segment. So let's take the break. This is Dr. Gordon Atherley, and my guest is Jeremy Gruber. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety and Empowerment Channels, CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio, and sharingtheburden.ca. Please stay with us. We're coming back. Change your world. Change your life. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com Get ready to experience a more fulfilling lifestyle. Tune in to Direct Connect Empowerment with host Fee Mazanki. 
The show will feature guests who have changed their lives by using the Direct Connect coaching program or have worked with the same concepts that this program offers. By hearing how others have been transformed, you will be inspired to move forward. Direct Connect Empowerment with Fee Mazanki can be heard live every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings of the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our wall. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. What makes you a success? Is it your business or career? Is it your family and social life? How do you achieve the next level in your success? Tune in to Infinite Success Radio with host Rachel O'Brien Eddy. Rachel and her amazing guests are here to encourage, inspire, and empower you to take control of your destiny and achieve the level of success you were born to reach. How do ordinary people become extraordinary? Find out with Infinite Success Radio, broadcasting live every Friday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Empowerment. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. That's D-O-C, the letter G, at FamilyCaregiversUnite.org. Don't forget, you can catch new episodes of our program twice every week, Mondays on the Voice America Empowerment Channel and Tuesdays on the Voice America Variety Channel. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Jeremy Gruber. Our topic is feasibility of de-identification of genetic data. Jeremy, now let's talk about de-identification of records as a way to protect genetic information that can be linked not only to individuals, but also to their genetic relatives and their descendants. Now, first of all, you've already mentioned quite a lot about de-identification, but because we're hearing quite a lot about it, I'd like you to go into more detail. So, first of all, please would you explain to us what is really meant by de-identification of records that are kept in big databases or biobanks, as I think you call them, and how how do they actually do that de-identification? Well, de-identification generally means the removal of personal identifiers from in, from a, a type of information. Uh, so, so things like name, social security number, address. Um, uh, those types of personal identifiers that most people are familiar with, uh, those are stripped away uh, from the information. The, one of the big problems, of course, with de-identification is, is that for any information to re- be really valuable, uh, you, you have to re-identify it. Uh, you have to be able to do research or do work with it uh, that allows you to match it back to the donor. Uh, so, uh, so de-identification is is, is a, a privacy protective method, but uh, but it is you you still in most cases will have a certain mechanism built in. Perhaps it's uh, a, a, a 
a number generated uh, to match to that information that you can then use to re-identify it. Um, how, what, whatever the technique is, um, generally uh, this type of data uh, has mechanisms in place to re-identify it. Now, hopefully that's by the individual or organization that's been tasked with doing the work with the first place and with the consent of whoever donated the sample. Um, but uh, but it is it's still a limiting factor. Let me just drill down a little bit further. When you produce genetic data that has none of those identifiers you've just been talking about, there's no name, there are no social uh, insurance, social security numbers, those kind of things. But is there anything in the actual genetic data, string of numbers, that can be made to identify someone who has, for example, a particular disease or a particular pattern of genetic information and that way find out who they are or who they might be. Jeremy? Absolutely. Um, absolutely. You know, DNA is, is perhaps the most perfect biometric uh, because uh, no, no two samples of DNA uh, are alike. Uh, every person in the world, uh, absent identical twins, uh, has, a, a unique, has a unique DNA uh, code. Uh, and uh, that DNA code, depending upon the size of the database, uh, that DNA uh, code can be matched uh, by looking for uh, certain types, certain consistent matches. Uh, you can find, uh, you, you can re-identify uh, just using the sample and a little bit of information uh, that you might uh, use to, to search for a match. Uh, it, it's been done in many studies, um, and, uh, and it's been shown uh, to be a real problem uh, with how we currently uh, store and use this type of information. Fair enough. Now, Jeremy, switch now to, I want to know the position in the sense of policy uh, of the Council for Responsibility genetics about the effectiveness of the identification for protecting records in the big databases and and we're talking of course about genetic information of individuals their genetic relatives and their descendants so what's the council's position jeremy well i think uh, crg certainly uh, uh believes that uh, most dna databases uh, are uh, have been created and are used for for important purposes, and, and it's 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 important to note that. Um, although some databases have grown uh, in ways that uh, may be inappropriate, uh, particularly forensic databases in the law enforcement uh, capacity. Um, but one of the the biggest problems uh, with these types of databases is the disconnect between what people think is happening with their information and what is actually happening with their information, uh, particularly because uh, as research develops uh, and databases are used for other types of purposes, uh, whatever the original intent of the donor of the sample might have uh, becomes lost over time. Uh, and so it's very difficult uh, for individuals to really know uh, where their information is and how it's being used. Uh, so that's a fundamental problem that the Council for Responsible Genetics is concerned about. And, and so we are, we are certainly uh, uh, in favor of uh, better privacy protections and fundamentally better regulations 
to ensure that uh, the standards for, for these types of databases uh, are, are high, that privacy uh, is, is, a, is, a, is kept uh, at a very high level. Uh, and that uh, these types, that there's a, a regular oversight to ensure that information is used in the way that people have expected it to be. And given permission, too. That's right, isn't it? Well, and that's, that's probably, Gordon, one of the biggest issues is, you know, what exactly is informed consent? Uh, when individuals donate their samples for a variety of different types of uses, because oftentimes it's just truly not informed. Uh, they may have agreed uh, that their sample be given to a database, uh, but they may not fully appreciate exactly uh, how that information is going to be used and then what uh, uh, and, and where that information might end up. Uh, and so uh, the the, the Techniques and the practices for obtaining informed consent also need to be uh, improved to ensure there is that disconnect disappears. Right. Now, I'm going to ask you to look to the future. I don't know how far in the future, perhaps not 500 years, but certainly uh, in the foreseeable future. How much reliance do you think should be placed on de-identification of records for protecting the genetic information held in big databases. And what I'm linking back to is you're talking about Microsoft working on better methods or methods of encryption of genetic data. Is that something that gives you um, kind of optimism uh, about reliance on the identification or do you have continuing concerns? Jeremy? Well, I, I, it does give me some hope. I mean, certainly uh, the the science is developing, uh, and the the, ma the the mathematical processes are developing uh, in order to uh, better protect this type of data. Um, whether or not they will be adopted in any type of uh, uh, immediate time frame is unlikely, um, and so uh, I think the issue of uh, misuse and access to and privacy of, privacy of genetic information are going to be very important uh, public policy uh, concerns for some time. Now, I still want to go stay with this question of the foreseeable future. One of the big users, um, I'm speaking from Canada at the moment, but I see this um, in governments pretty widely, is there's great interest in the kind of research that depends on genetic information. Um, there's a certain amount of controversy about it, but nevertheless, governments are extremely interested in these kind of records, these kind of processes, and the uses of this information. That's a positive thing in some ways, but it also may lead to governments being unduly sympathetic to uh, <laughs> databases that aren't so well protected. Jeremy, what do you think? Uh, Gordon, I think there's no question. Um, there, uh, we, we're in an era of, of uh, scientific discovery uh, that is often characterized as big data. And uh, in big data science, uh, the, the purpose is to collect as much information as you can to try to identify correlations in data. Uh, 
and so there is a, a big movement to collect more and more genetic information for this very type of research. Uh, and we're seeing governments already uh, moving in that direction. Uh, in the United Kingdom, for example, uh, there's been a, a big push to put everybody's health records, including their genetic information, uh, to make it available to research. Uh, ostensibly in, in, for purposes of, of, of research and discovery, but, but of course the, the privacy implications are profound, um, particularly when, when, the when the government is implicated. Um, and we're, we're likely in the future to see uh, more and more, as I mentioned, this bleeding of, of databases, uh, but we're likely to see as that databases become more robust, we're likely to see more and more of that. Uh, you know, it, it's not hard to imagine for example, uh, a, a policeman who uh, thinks somebody might uh, have committed a crime and knows that their uh, DNA is in a, in a, uh, a health-related database, it's not hard to imagine them trying to access that database uh, in order to try to match them to an alleged crime. Uh, so there's, there's all kinds of, of possibilities of bleed-through uh, of different types of, of, of databases. Uh, and oftentimes law enforcement in particular uh, is one of those types of groups that are gift given a wide latitude uh, to access this type of information. And so that become, can become a real problem. Right. Now, once again, it's time to take the break. So we'll do that now. This is Dr. Gordon Elderly, and my guest is Jeremy Gruber. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety and Empowerment Channels, CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio, and sharingtheburden.ca. Please stay with us. We're coming back. Change your world change your life. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com Get ready to experience a more fulfilling lifestyle. Tune in to Direct Connect Empowerment with host Fee Mazanke. The show will feature guests who have changed their lives by using the Direct Connect coaching program or have worked with the same concepts that this program offers. By hearing how others have been transformed, you will be inspired to move forward. Direct Connect Empowerment with Fee Mazanke can be heard live every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings of the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our wall. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. What makes you a success? Is it your business or career? Is it your family and social life? How do you achieve the next level in your success? Tune in to Infinite Success Radio with host Rachel O'Brien Eddy. Rachel and her amazing guests are here to encourage, inspire, and empower you to take control of your destiny and achieve the level of success you were born to reach. How do ordinary people become extraordinary? Find out with Infinite Success Radio, broadcasting live every Friday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Empowerment. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com
are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. That's D-O-C, the letter G, at familycaregiversunite.org. Don't forget, you can catch new episodes of our program twice every week. Mondays on the Voice America Empowerment Channel and Tuesdays on the Voice America Variety Channel. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Jeremy Gruber. Our topic is feasibility of de-identification of genetic data. Now, Jeremy, let's talk about information for the public about the importance of protecting genetic information. So, Broad question. How well informed is the public about the importance of protecting genetic information, you know, for the individuals, the genetic relatives and descendants? And in what ways does the Council for Responsible Genetics, your organization, work to keep the public informed? Jeremy? Well, unfortunately, in, in many cases, the public is, is very poorly informed uh, about uh, protecting genetic information. Uh, there have been a number of surveys that have done uh, been done that have found uh, that while the public is very concerned about the privacy of the genetic information, uh, most people uh, are not familiar with any any laws or regulations that protect their genetic information. And many of them, many people don't even know that such laws even exist. Uh, there are no uh, federal agencies that that conduct any type of education uh, around these types of issues. So it's really left to organizations like our, our own, the Council for Responsible Genetics, uh, to try to, to change that uh, and to uh, inform the public more about uh, their privacy and, and where they're protected and where they're not. Um, we do a, a lot of work, uh, as you mentioned at the beginning of this conversation, on uh, uh, legislation. Uh, but we also do a lot of work on, in public education. We have a, a dedicated website uh, uh, and project called the Genetic Privacy Network uh, at geneticprivacynetwork.org where we have a lot of information uh, about uh, uh, issues related to genetic privacy and discrimination uh, and a lot of helpful hints about how to protect yourself. Now, I would just like to ask you to say one or two things more about public information in the sense that um, everybody, all organizations, government, healthcare systems, and the rest of it should be providing this kind of information. Uh, That is saying to the public, here's why it's important and here's what we're doing. Uh, Would it be fair to say that the Council for Responsible Genetics is in fact the major informer of the public as things are at the moment? Jeremy? Well, that's certainly a, a role that we've taken on. Uh, you know, I, I would hope that uh, other entities uh, uh, would continue to do this type of work. Unfortunately, there a lot of the, the sort of the frontline responders, uh, doctors uh, and healthcare workers who, who would be uh, often pressed with questions from the public about these types of issues are as misinformed uh, or uh, as most of the public are about these issues. Uh, uh, and so, unfortunately, again, it's left to, to organizations like the Council for Responsible Genetics to try to make inroads in this area. And we've done uh, quite a bit of work uh, to push for uh, better education uh, across the United States. Uh, and we've made and we've made some some good inroads. Uh, but unfortunately, there is no 
uh, you know, government-funded public education effort. Uh, some organizations, uh, like the American Medical Association, are starting to recognize the need for better education in this area and, and have uh, started to undertake programs, and we've worked with them uh, to uh, better inform their members. Um, but it, it's really uh, still, uh, we're still, still in a situation uh, where uh, a lot more work needs to be done. Right. Now, different type of question. Um, an individual goes to a hospital, and the hospital, you know, maybe it's the doctor, the nurse, whoever, asks consent from the individual for disclosure of their genetic information. Can we use your genetic information and disclose it for such and so? Jeremy, what are the two most important questions that the individuals should ask if they get that request. Jeremy? Well, you should always ask your doctor or the healthcare professional that you're working with how they handle personal genetic information and whether they work with any third-party entities that have access to that type of information. And you should also ask them if a particular medical procedure or research protocol involves genetic testing. Sometimes it will, and, and the individual uh, who is consenting to disclosure of medical information doesn't realize they're also consenting to disclosure uh, of genetic information. Finally, you really should never consent to any medical procedure or research protocol, for that matter, um, that involves genetic testing without knowing what genetic information is being collected, what will be done with that genetic information, what security measures are in place to protect the privacy of information, and finally, what will be done with any sample after the genetic test has been completed. Um, they're very simple, straightforward questions, uh, and, and every uh, individual in a, in a medical or, or even research setting really should be posing those questions. Right. Good. Um, now, let's suppose that a hospital doesn't request consent for disclosure of an individual's genetic information. What, what should the individual assume if that request is not made? Jeremy? Well, depending upon uh, the state, um, in the United States, uh, you have uh, a number of different uh, things that you might be able to do. Uh, every health care provider and health plan uh, covered by the federal, uh, uh, is covered by the federal health privacy law. Um, and, uh, and there will be a privacy officer, uh, that is in charge of governing that. Uh, so, uh, that may be one, uh, individual office that you might be able to, uh, uh, contact. Uh, you can also file a, a federal complaint with, a, you know, the appropriate, uh, federal agency that might govern your situation, whether it be the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, uh, Office for Civil Rights or, or the EEOC if it's, if you think that your employment is being, uh, implicated. Uh, there are also several federal agencies that are involved in enforcing the health insurance, uh, uh health insurance provisions, uh, including the Department of Labor. Um, so, uh, there, there are a number of potential um, federal recourses, and then depending upon your state, uh, you may be able to go to your state attorney general, state insurance commissioner, or med the medical board of your state uh, to uh, to identify whether or not uh, you have have had your information used improperly. Right. Now, I want to just sort of extend that a little bit in the in the following way that there's a lot of interest and work now going on, as you know, in for personalized cancer care, that is to say, when um, they know about the genetics inside you, 
in particular as the genetics relates to the cancer, they're working on something that sounds very promising, which is they can, if you like, customize the medications to match the genetic potential for better, more responsive, more appropriate care and avoid medication that won't work in particular circumstances. Now, that's very attractive, but what it tends to mean this is me speculating, is that most hospitals who are involved in this kind of work are in fact collecting genetic information from cancer patients. Now, I may be wrong about that, but what do you think about the general point that this kind of exciting research in healthcare also accompanies, is accompanied by um, collecting genetic information and storing it? Jeremy? Well, certainly... All research uh, that involves uh, 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 exploring uh, how genetic information can be used uh, to improve uh, healthcare delivery is going to necessarily require collecting genetic information. And we want to uh, promote this type of research. We want to ensure that beneficial research uh, it continues um, that, uh, and that it's not unduly inhibited. Uh, that's exactly why we need better laws and regulations in place to ensure that people are protected um, uh, as this type of research continues. We also need these types of laws and regulations so that people feel secure enough to participate. Because right. people are not going to participate in sufficient numbers in research. They're not going to get tested for their own personal health reasons uh, if they don't feel that, they, uh, that that information is going to be uh, safe and secure and not, and not misused uh, improperly. Uh, right. So it's really, it's really vital uh, that we have uh, a better structured system in place uh, for all parties uh, to ensure that the information is used uh, to promote public health and welfare uh, and that individuals are protected. Right. It's a matter, too, of trust, isn't it, in the sense that um, we need to know that there's protection, but we also need to know that there's all this promising research going on that ultimately has a good chance of benefiting us. Now, unfortunately, right. I mean, the whole system of healthcare and research is based upon trust. Uh, and when that trust arose, when people uh, start to believe that what they're being told is not matching with what's happening with their information, uh, the whole system begins to crumble, and we all right. lose. Now, unfortunately, we've come to the end of this very, very interesting and important um, episode, Jeremy. I hope that, um, first of all, we'll get an opportunity to talk again. But in any case, I want to thank you very much for the way in which you've explained the issues, the challenges, the risks, the benefits. And, and that way is going to be very helpful to our audience because of the way you've explained it. And also the, the sense of passion and caring that you convey in the way you describe these things. So if I say, keep up the good work. I'm not joking. I'm saying for the sake of all of us, people, you, your organization and people like you need to enjoy success in your work because it matters.
Now, I want to say thank you to our listeners. We'd like to hear your comments on this episode. And I'd just like to add that with Family Caregivers Unite, we're starting a new research project called Qualitative Research to find out what you, our listeners, think about important topics, such as the one we've just been listening to. Please email me if you're interested. Our next episode will be Autonomy for the Aged. Please join us, same time, same spot on the internet. Talk to you then. Thank you again for joining us this week for Family Caregivers Unite with your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley. Please tune in again twice every week, Mondays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel and Tuesdays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Until the next show, we hope our programs help make the coming week easier and more hopeful. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.